Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Lord's Cricket Podcast, an Ashes Special. Well, welcome along to this Ashes special brought to you from the Lord's Pavilion in association with Wisdom Monthly. I'm your host, Will Rowe, and in this episode, The Birth of the Urn and Bodyline, we look at how one of sport's greatest rivalries was born, a love story of sorts that began at the Oval in 1882, and whether a kidnapping a few years before played any part. We'll then fast forward 50 years to the now infamous Bodyline series in 1932, when England set sail for Australia under win-at-all-cost captain Douglas Jardine, using on-field tactics so unsporting that it even reached UK Parliament as relations got to an all-time low between the two sides. To chew over all this, in the first of this three-part series, I'm joined in the MCC committee room, no less, by cricket historian and collector David Frith. Welcome, David. Morning. Good to have you here. And MCC librarian Neil Robinson. Welcome, Neil. Good morning. Great stuff. Well, opening up, we have the Times sporting obituary in front of us, an affectionate remembrance of English cricket which died at the Oval on the 29th of August 1882, deeply lamented by a large circle of sorrowing friends and acquaintances. Rest in peace. The body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. Uh, Neil, can you set the scene? What is this obituary? (laughs) This obituary declaring the death of English cricket really vocalises the upset of the English cricketing public at having been defeated by a representative Australian side on their own soil for the first time. Just to put that in context, it was only the second test match that had been played in England. The first one had only been two years earlier. And England didn't have a terribly impressive record when they played representative matches in Australia. They had only won one test match in Australia before that. So it really shouldn't have been such a surprise. And on the way back from the the match at the Oval to their hotel in the West End, the Australians were actually fated by cheering crowds right along the way. So it was as much a celebration as a commemoration and a, a, a grievance of the, uh, uh, for English cricket. Um, but nevertheless, it was an important mark in the development of, of cricketing relations between the, the two countries. And it was such a thrilling match as well. And that's really what, what got the whole rivalry going. What, what happened in that match? I'll bring you in here, David. I mean, as a cricket historian, what happened at the Oval in 1882? Panic, I think. <laughs> Sheer panic on the part of the England batsmen. I think the target was about 85. Exactly, 85. And they made 77. And Spoffeth the Demon yeah. was riled. And uh, he usually was riled. But on this occasion, there was the added factor that one of the Aussies, Sammy Jones, had gone out to garden, pat the pitch, and they ran him out. It wasn't a very savoury incident. He really shouldn't have gone. We didn't have television then, but you can picture it from the description that he played the ball and then went down to tap a divot. The pitch was full of divots. And WG raced in, ball in hand, took the bales off and triumphantly said, we've got him. 
the Australians were aghast and it probably gave Spofforth that extra edge. And it was an hysterical win, literally. It was a poor chap uh, collapsed and died with the tension at the Oval that day. Was a spectator in the crowd? Yeah. And uh, someone, else, someone else chewed through his cane of his umbrella, the handle of his umbrella. I don't know if he died. Um, <laughs> well, no, it was a sensational start, but they didn't know what they were starting. No one could have looked ahead and seen what a phenomenon Ashes cricket has become. That's where it all started. England were probably favourites to still win the match? 85 to win. By our standards, that's not much, even on a pitch <laughs> that's a bit sporty. But then it, it was um, all around them were these low-scoring matches because of the uncovered pitches. Some of us happened to believe it was the worst thing that ever happened when they covered pitches, but all the same, they couldn't do it. They made 77, lost by seven runs, and there was hysteria at the Oval and across the cables to Australia. It was a, great, a day of great joy for Australia. They'd done it. They'd beaten... They didn't call them Poms in those days, but they'd beaten the Englishmen on their own turf. And that gave a lot of edge to when Ivo Bly took his team very soon afterwards, weeks afterwards, to Australia to see if they can get those ashes back. And the weather was very poor those two days. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about you know, five-day test matches these days coming perhaps down to four. In those days, the match finished in two, largely mm. because of the, the pitch issues and the great bowling, but also because the weather was much more conducive to bowling than it was to batting at the time. Mm. And there was a great rivalry between the two sides, namely between W.G. Grace and Fred the Demon Spofforth. Um, well, There's Grace a bit of the history Aust- to this as well. Grace and the Australians generally, I think, going back to 1878 when um, there was the incident with Billy Midwinter. You referred to a kidnapping in your introduction. That, that might be putting it a little bit strongly, but there was certainly an issue. Midwinter um, was an Australian batsman who had been born in the Forest of Dean and had qualified to play for Gloucestershire through that. Um, and he played for Gloucestershire in 1877, but come the following summer, he was also selected in the Australian touring side, so there was a natural conflict there. And the Australians were due to play a match at Lords against MCC, and on the same day, Gloucestershire were at the Oval playing against Surrey. And Grace, you know, realising that Midwinter wasn't with the Gloucestershire team, made his way up to Lords and persuaded him to come along to the Oval. Some of the Australians chased after him and, and tried to remonstrate, but in the end, Midwinter did play, not very successfully, I have to say. I think he scored Norton three in the match for Gloucestershire. And there were strong words exchanged between Grace and the Australians, um, which the Australians were, were so upset they were threatening to pull out of a later tour fixture at Bristol against Gloucestershire, which would have been a, a severe hit for the, the funds of the, the county club. And Grace was forced to apologise for what he called his unparliamentary language. <laughs> um, so it really goes back to that, not, not the only people in cricket that Grace um, irritated from time to time. I just wanted to quickly check on the name, the demon. Why was Fred Spotheth given this name? I, ca- I can't really pronounce that name. Fred Spotheth. <laughs> Why was he given this name? Well, I think it was partly due to his slightly demonic appearance. He, he had this shock of very dark hair. He was quite swarthy in his complexion. He had this droopy moustache. Think, if you like, a slightly more gaunt-looking Dennis Lilly yeah. in his pomp in the 1970s. That was how Spofforth appeared. And he had that same kind of aggression on yeah. the pitch that, that a lot of great fast bowlers have. Not that he was just an out-and-out fast bowler. He, he spent a lot of time in England cutting down his pace and bowling off-cutters. He was a really skillful bowler. 
and a very generous man off the field as well, known for, for giving gifts. And he played for Hampstead alongside the great Stoddart. So he's got a local connection here to Lords, just up he the road. Just indeed, up the road yeah. indeed, yes. And uh, also with this penny, he gave that to uh, a friend, Levi Wright, who played for Derbyshire, and eventually it went to someone else, and eventually it went to Ron Yeomans, and I bought it off Ron about 40 years ago. It's a George III penny, 1773, and Bly tossed with this in the fourth test match of the 1882-83 series, which England had already won. They'd recovered the Ashes, the fourth test. All right, they lost that, but who cares? It was actually 2-2, but England won the Ashes with the third test. And that's the coin that he used to toss. It's a great historic relic, and I treasure it. I keep it under the pillow. I mentioned in the intro, David, that not only are you a cricket historian, you're a collector, and uh, for the sake of... Uh, listeners, as this is a podcast, can you just give that penny a little tap so they can hear it? Beautiful. So that's <laughs> the penny that Ivo Bly tossed with when he was out in Australia. And it, it looks like a 10p coin, not to do it disservice. It's about, the, you know, just to give someone context, it's about the size of a 10p coin. Yes. And is it yeah. double-headed or is it a correct penny? Um, <laughs> it has George III's image on one side and uh, Britannia on the other. So it's not a W.G. Grace coin? Uh, he couldn't get away with calling woman here because <laughs> on one side is a man. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Well, so in 1882, we have the creation of essentially the mythical ashes. The Sporting right. Times obituary calls it, you know, the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. But this doesn't actually exist, this little urn that listeners will be so used to seeing captains waving about. It's not until Ivo Bly goes over to Australia the following winter um, that that story begins. Exactly. The, the idea of the ashes really started as a, a joke and a slight political dig at the fact that cremation was illegal at the time in mm. the United Kingdom. And the man who placed that obituary in the Sporting Times was connected with the campaign to legalise cremation. So the, there was a political element to it, but it was mainly a joke, and it was a joke that caught on because when Ivo Bly was about to take his team out to Australia that following winter, he declared he was going out there to regain the ashes of English cricket. And Billy Murdoch, the Australian captain, um, with his team returning to Australia, said that he was going to defend the ashes. Now, by the ashes, they both meant the honour of their own nation as a cricketing team. Uh, so there, there were no ashes at first, and they only took physical form during that tour. So, picking up the story, what happens out in Australia, David? 82-83. Yeah. How does the Ashes come to be? It's, it's a well, long story. Well, yeah, Eng England won two of the first three, so that's all they planned for. They stuck on a fourth test right. afterwards. But at that point, when England won the third test to go 2-1 up, that's when the ladies of Rupertswood presented Ivo with this terracotta urn. And it all sounds very jolly, and no doubt it was supremely relaxing. But suddenly... The girls, headed by Florence Morphy, presented him with this terracotta urn. What went into it? You can take your choice. It's thought that it was ashes from a bale, possibly from that last recent test match. Uh, someone thought, in fact, a member of the family years later said, I believe it was a veil. 
which is easily misinterpreted as being bail. Um, but I picked up a story 30 or 40 years ago that the maid in Cobham Hall knocked it off the fireplace. Um, this was probably just before the Second World War. And the butler came in, was horrified. The urn might have cracked a little, but it didn't disintegrate, thank goodness. And he scolded her for her clumsiness and scratched his head and then decided to put some ashes out of the fireplace into that urn. Now, I knew a man who knew the butler, and he said he, he wasn't making it up. So I've uh, accepted that. Of course, there's a reluctance at Lords to uh, have a forensic test on the contents. It will probably ruin everything, so let's carry on believing <laughs> what we wish to believe. But we did have an X-ray, and we, the X-ray did reveal that uh, there were a, a number of tiny cracks in the fabric of the urn, in the yeah. terracotta itself, which indicated that at some point it had been damaged yeah. and repaired quite painstakingly. So the, the story of the maid... Well, who knows whether it's true or not, but there's certainly some evidence to Plausible, corroborate it. Yeah. There is another um, story. There, there are lots of stories about the origin <laughs> of the urn, um, and I have to give the alternative one to, to Davis. There was a, a, a social match at, at Rupert's Wood with the amateurs of Ivo's team on the, the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, before the test series even started. And some of the other stories that, that we have from gathered from the family and from the descendants of estate workers is that the present the original presentation of the urn um, took place after that match um, so it was even before the the the, the test series had taken place mm. and the honor of of english cricket had been regained but lady janet clark the lady of the house felt that simply by winning this social match ivo's team had regained the honor of english cricket and he should be rewarded with a the ashes in in some respect um, and there was another element to that, of course. During that visit, Ivo had met and become very friendly with the companion of the, the Clark family, an Australian girl called Florence Rose Morphy, who would later become his wife. And when he acceded to the title, she became the Countess of Darnley. And perhaps that urn was meant to symbolise not just the cricket, but also the bond between Ivo and Florence that was apparent already at that stage of their relationship. And certainly they kept it as a personal memento and a token of, of the time when they met and they fell in love. So really the story of the urn, it shouldn't ever be something that divides the English and the Australians. It should be a sign that we are together mm. because that's, that's what brought them together in the first place. So it's a story of love and unity. It's an absolute love story, yes. Which in the second half of this podcast, when we come to talk about body lying, we might disagree with slightly. Well, I'm a bit too choked up at the moment. <laughs> There's uh, nothing quite I, like a family at war, is there? I belong to both countries, and, and what Neil says is spot on. It's, uh, it's more than just a symbol of a sporting contest. Of course, the Australians are a bit miffed that they hardly ever get to see it. In fact, for years and years, there was no chance of that. But it went out on Prince Charles's flight in 1988 uh, for Australia's bicentenary, and it toured the country. And in Sydney, the queue went right around the block. People just wanted to gaze at this little treasure. Don Bradman saw it and claimed at the time that uh, he'd never seen it before. Right. He'd made all those hundreds, 19 of them against England, but he'd never seen the urn. But the fact is, his memory failed him because in 1930, his first tour, when he made those incredible 974 runs in the test, 
uh, Florence was guest of honour at a dinner in London and all the Australian players and a lot of VIPs sat around a giant table and in the middle was that tiny little terracotta urn. So he had looked at it, but he didn't realise it. And she had about three years to live, I think, at that point, and she said that she would be making sure that its future was safeguarded and she was going to give it to the club and the MCC eventually did take possession of it and have uh, only released it, I think, on two occasions and uh, almost had a royal bodyguard when it went to Australia. Yeah, I think the last time that the urn went to Australia, it had its own seat on the flight. It did indeed. We took, mm-hmm. it, Dave is quite right, it went out for the Australian Bicentennial in 1988 and was displayed, I think, in a bank in Sydney. That was Rural bank, yeah. Um, but in 2006, for the Ashes series then, um, we sent it out and where it toured all the state capitals. More than 100,000 Australians came to see it and the reactions were extraordinary. Uh, there were people breaking down in tears, saying prayers, but that's really why we had it x-rayed. We had planned to send it out there um, four years earlier, in you know, 2003, but it was too unstable at the time. It is very old, very fragile, and that's why it doesn't get carried around too much, and that's why it's never been a trophy. It's never been presented at the end of a series. All of the, the little urns that you see, the captain's, uh, waving around in the final mm-hmm. test match. Those are always replicas. And that's a fairly recent innovation. I think it's only since 1985. David yeah, Gow yeah. was the first captain to, to wave a replica urn around. Um, before that, there, there, re- there was no trophy. There still wasn't a trophy till the end of the 1990s. And that led some, some sponsors um, presented trophies for the series. Uh, there was the V&G Ashes in 1986, um, Greg Chappell's team were presented with a silver cup in, in 83 when they won the Ashes down in Australia. But it wasn't until 98-99 when MCC created the Waterford Crystal Ashes Trophy. The formal trophy, permanent, for the series was presented. It was a lovely gesture to create that giant Waterford Crystal replica of the Ashes. But at the press conference in Sydney, I remember asking Mark Taylor, the Australian captain, um, did he like it? He said, I'd happily drop it and smash it to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> no one has ever held... There's only one captain that's ever actually held the Ashes Urn, which is Ivo Blythe. Yeah. No other captain has ever held it. Mm. And Certainly there's been 90 captains of England and Australia in England versus Australia, Ashes Test Match, hence Ashes Series. But only one man has ever held it. And as you pointed out to me recently, Neil... It wasn't during the series. It wasn't. Well, it, he, he would have handled it after the series because he took it home to, to Kent, but it wasn't... He didn't wave it about. He, he certainly, it wasn't <laughs> you know, presented at the ground. It wasn't waved around as part of any celebration. Um, and whether Ivo really connected the urn with the idea of the Ashes that much is, is debatable because at the end of that tour, there was a farewell dinner at Melbourne and, and he declared that the Ashes should be buried in a, a corner of the MCG and forgotten. But he obviously didn't mean the urn because he took that back to England with him, along with his new Australian wife. So the, there was a separation really between what the urn represented at the time and what it's come to represent more than a century later. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Australians feel so strongly about this uh, and that one of the first things they want to do when they come to England, whether it's for an Ashes series or on a holiday, is to have a look at it. I think MCC are probably unaware that one day one of them slipped a replica into that case and has the original. (laughs) (laughs) So where is the real Ashes Aird? Well, we hope it's uh, still in the MCC Museum. We presume so. It Um, certainly is. A couple of of Australian uh, players. It's become so symbolic. I think in 2001... Um, slightly silly story, but after the Oval Test, when Australia had won that series, as they were so dominant during that period, Ricky Ponting and Colin Miller tried to burn three bales and put it into their own makeshift urn. Yes, they, they in the dressing room at the Oval, they burned three bales or tried to burn them with kerosene, but kerosene doesn't really burn at a high enough temperature to, to destroy wood in the way that uh, would create ashes. So they had some rather charred bales that they kept in a plastic, con- Colin Miller, kept in a plastic container for several years and eventually a, a rather lovely urn was made out of Huon wood to, to keep them in um, and actually we, we subsequently bought them at auction there in our museum as well Sad isn't it <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit it's a bit ridiculous but, but there we have it so that's that is the, that's the birth of the urn and the, the symbol of the ashes and then the, the real thing a perfume jar from Florence Morphy to the then England captain Ivo Bly is uh, yeah, it's the beginning of one of sport's greatest rivalry. Well, right, now it's, uh, it's time for a short break. And after that, we'll discuss an Ashes series that divided opinion quite like no other, Bodyline. The first issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, an Ashes special, is in shops from the 16th of November. To subscribe and save over £20, go to wisdomsubs.com forward slash ashes. I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to win the Ashes. And so we start the second half of this podcast with the words of England captain Douglas Jardine. David, I'll throw it straight to you. That was a win-at-all-cost mentality there. He told the truth. He didn't win any friends at all. Even in his home country, he divided England. There were those who thought that he damaged uh, empire-commonwealth relations, uh, irretrievably perhaps, Already there were wounds over Gallipoli Mm. 17 years earlier. And uh, what is happening? Of course, if it had been relayed as we have test relayed today with um, colour television instantaneously, the British public, I think, would have seen that it was pretty unpleasant. But all they had were newspaper reports and the occasional radio bulletin and they thought that um, the Australians were whinging and couldn't take it and all the rest of it. But for those who were there, and I knew quite a few who were not only there, they were out in the middle, um, it was a bruising, horrible summer of cricket and many of them were unforgiving. And this was Douglas Jardine, the, the England captain, set sail for Australia for the 1932-33 tour. 
to to win the Ashes, um, to use a form of intimidatory bowling where you would come round the wicket, um, pack the leg side field behind square on the leg side, and essentially look to injure the Australian batsman. Uh, you've touched on it there, talking about the kind of the political feeling. Um, why was Jardine sort of determined to go out there and, and play the game in this way? One word, really. Bradman. Don made 974 runs here in 1930, and they thought at home he'd do at least the same total again. How did you get him out? Well, in the last test of 1930 at the Oval, he made a double century, but during the course of that match, Lawood tickled him up a bit with a few short ones. And there'd been a rain hold-up, and they went straight back out, and the pitch had been gingered up a bit, and he's batting with Archie Jackson. Archie got hit all over the place. He's a brilliant young fellow who was going to be doomed to die three years later. But Bradman was very uncomfortable. And although Jardine wasn't there when that happened, his friend Percy Fender was and relayed this. And then they went to the cinema and they saw a few shots there. And the conclusion was Bradman doesn't like it short at the body with all these fielders close by. They weren't as uh, numerous then. This was part of the development of the seed of the idea. Add to the short ball at Bradman's throat, the line on the leg stump, have those fielders clustered on the leg side, have a couple out for the hook or the top edge, and that would finish Bradman off. What David said earlier about Gallipoli and the, the feeling that Australian... Working-class Australian lads have been sent to their death by incompetent and uncaring aristocratic English commanders. That, had, that, had, that was still a festering wound, I think, in, in the Australian imagination. And Jardine represented that same kind of Englishness as the commanders at Gallipoli had. He, when he fielded in the deep, he was barracked terribly. There's a story about one of the um, crowd shouted, let him die of thirst when he asked for a drink. That was one of the milder reactions <laughs> from the crowd. I think that came from the famous Yabber, who was king of the barracas on the hill at Sydney. Well, they got at him at every opportunity, and it was pretty obvious that he walked into this, uh, not a trap, he knew that uh, they'd get at him, but he was a strong man, an exceedingly strong man. He showed that in the Second World War. When he went on fighting on the continent, they had to drag him home. You're too old to be... Uh, around Dunkirk and Calais when the Germans had almost reached the coast. Uh, I think people who knew him later on, I remember John Islett saying he was wonderful company, had a mm. great sense of humour, there was warmth to him. But he also had a lot of self-discipline and bravery. He could cop it. I mean, they came back from the Bodyline tour and the West Indians let rip at Old Trafford. He made a 100 and he was badly bruised. In the Queensland match during the Bodyline Tour, Eddie Gilbert, the Aboriginal, hit him all over the place and cut him around the hip where there isn't much flesh and muscle. And he walked off. He didn't say anything to anyone, but he, the masseur put him on the table and looked at it and it was bruised and bleeding. And they thought, this man is tough. And when I think of Gubby Allen, who was uh, his sort of uh, first lieutenant, Gubby virtuously said, I shan't bowl body line, Douglas. And uh, he said, I'll go on the next ship home. And Douglas, 
probably as close the same will go, but he, he needed him. He was a fast bowler. Uh, he said, I will not bowl body line. And Bill Bowes said years later, well, of course he couldn't bowl it. He wasn't accurate enough. Yet he was happy to sit there at short legs, scooping up quite a few catches as the wretched Australians fended the ball off their faces. Uh, so there was a bit of hypocrisy about old Gubby. I remember talking to Leo O'Brien, who was a left-hander from Victoria, and he went out to bat in his first test of the series, and Jardine had all the fieldsmen over on the leg side, and Leo was a left-hander. And he said, I'm a left-hander, thinking that they were on the wrong side. He said, no, these are all leg-side fielders. You've got to cop it sweet. I've got here a glove that... Leo gave me some years ago, signed by him, the old so-called pimple glove. That's all he had on his hands. Sometimes they'd put a bit of padding on their ribs, but compared to today's helmeted, um, cushioned batsmen, the Australians of 32-3 were exposed, very badly exposed, and there were quite a lot of injuries. And just for listeners, the the glove that you just showed me now is... I mean, it's amazing to think that someone would face fast bowling wearing that. It looks nothing more than a sort of common gardening glove. Um, It's almost no protection at all. Um, It was the third test at Adelaide where things really got bad. This was when Bill Woodfull and and Bertie Oldfield were hit. Um, We mentioned at the top of the the podcast, I said, you know, there was then a cable exchange and it got to cabinet meetings at UK Parliament. What was the next sort of... I mean, what happened then? Because it was one all-in series, Adelaide. It was Harold Larwood, the, the great Nottinghamshire fast bowler, that was doing the majority of the damage. And, uh, I mean, we're sitting in the MCC committee room. There was, a, there was a, a cable sent back from the Australian cricket board. Well, the cable actually um, reached England in the middle of the night. And uh, the president of MCC was awoken by member of staff at one in the morning. The cable was slow to arrive because already Gilbert Mant, who was uh, an agency reporter, had sent his story over to London and the wires were buzzing hot. So by the time the Australian cable came protesting, it was a clumsy cable. It was put together chiefly by two or three men. There were some members of the Australian board weren't even at Adelaide at the time. They didn't have modern devices to compare notes in split seconds from one end of the continent to the other. Everything was very slow in those days. Even so, there were, what, about 18 cables went back and forth in a very short time. And the Australians' fury was quite evident to MCC, who ran the game in this country. And uh, MCC were absolutely unresponsive, resistant, uh, didn't want to know. But eventually, you know, as the weeks passed, they realised there was a real problem here and something had to be done. It was the word in that first Australian cable, unsportsmanlike, that That's MCC what got the really upset. Yeah. <laughs> the very idea that MCC, one of the, according to its own credo, the most honourable institutions in the British Empire, could be capable of sending a team anywhere that would play in an unsportsmanlike manner was just unthinkable. And it really shows in the response that they sent how unthinkable they thought it. What did they say? Well, 
the first draft of this cable, this is interesting, um, was put together by the sec- club secretary of the time, William Findlay, and it was really quite conciliatory. Uh, it, it just expressed regret at the contents of the cable. And this, this was put to the MCC committee, but it, it, it was amended largely, I think, by the president, Viscount Lewisham, and uh, Sir Kiniston Studd, who, interestingly, was the brother of um, C.T. Studd, who'd played in that first Ashes Test match in the Oval. Um, And the first two sentences were, we deplore your cable. We deprecate your opinion. It was as insulting as it could possibly get. And it clearly showed that not only were, were they offended beyond measure by the contents of the Australian cable, they also simply didn't get it. They just had no idea, because of the difficulties of communication at the time and the fact that none of them were actually out there in Australia, none of them had seen body line bowling or knew what it was like. Um, They just didn't understand what the Australians were observing and what the the nature of their worries were. And yet it had been seen in England, hadn't it, during the summer of 32, in preparation for the visit to Australia. Arthur Carr, the Nottinghamshire captain, was using Larwood and Bose with the body line field in the county championship matches and quite a few casualties were listed that summer but I think very few people realise that this was a preparation, a rehearsal for the tour down under. There's an unsung hero here. He's a little Australian chap called Robbie MacDonald. He played a bit for... Leicestershire. He played for Queensland. He played for Victoria, I think. He was a dental surgeon, a cricket lover. And in this very committee room at Lord's, he was cleverly putting it across that if England didn't agree to do something about this unbridled hostility of bouncers, bouncers, bouncers with this horrible legside field... Then in 1934, if Australia came at all, they might bring four or five big, burly, fast bowlers. And that was a threat that I think straightened out some of the administrators and thought, yes, this is really, we're on the edge here. Although, Neil, I believe you understand it was more of a gentleman's agreement, not the laws of the game that were changed at the The, time. The laws of the game um, actually were changed in the 1960s initially. Ordinary leg theory. 1960s saw a a good deal of negative bowling, bowling at the pads, batsmen restricted from scoring. And it was that that eventually led to the legislation coming in that restricted the number of fielders behind square on the leg side, the restriction we still have today. Um, That formally entered the law after a couple of years of experimentation in 1970. And just to finish on this point, you know, the, the fallout from the body line, when did it... It did end up in Parliament. In the, there was a Cabinet meeting. It got to that stage of, uh, I don't want to say crisis, but relationships got so poor that this actually became political in the actual mm. political sense. There were, connect, there were political contacts in both countries. The Governor of South Australia, Sir Alexander Hall Rothman, was was actually in, in London at the time during the Adelaide test, and his comptroller, um, Cyril Lee Windsor, cabled him to let him know what was going on, and he made contact with the Secretary of State for the Dominions, Jimmy Thomas. Um, exactly what um, communication the government had with MCC is not clear. I don't think anything's been written down. No paperwork survives, but conversations 
fairly clearly happened because Thomas later said that nothing in his career as Secretary of State was so difficult and so tiresome as trying to sort out the cricketing relations between England and Australia. And similarly in Australia, uh, the Prime Minister, Mr Lyons, got involved as well, didn't he? he oh, yes, they were all in it. And the odd thing was that many of the Australian politicians were veterans of Gallipoli. <laughs> and always there's this feeling that cricket is war without the bloodshed, although there was a bit of bloodshed during that uh, Ashes, the 32-3 Ashes series. But... Um, Lord Gowrie, as he later became, was a key figure. The goings-on in the diplomatic quarters, we'll never know exactly how much it was. We picked up drifts of it here and there. But when um, a couple of Australian writers came over here in 82 to do a book on Bodyline, they sought to rifle with the help of the librarian here at Lords through all of MCC's records. Let's find the missing documents, but they were not to be found. And the suspicion points to the weak manager of the Bodyline Tour, Plum Warner, who during the war had a big clear out <coughs> here at Lords, and it's thought that some of the embarrassing correspondence might have been removed forever, <clears throat> because it, it was a vanity thing for a lot of people. They staked their reputations on either upholding Australia's rights yeah. or stamping out this horrible, hostile form of bowling. Well, just to finish on that Bodyline series and then the final section of the podcast, we'll, we'll look at the ashes, the rivalry and, and what it means. Um, David, you, you knew Sir Donald Bradman. You met him you've interviewed him what was what did he tell you about that bodyline series because as you said um when we started talking about bodyline douglas jardine in your mind it was one reason why he employed the tactic and that was to counter the great don if there never been a bradman i imagine there never would have been bodyline leg theory yes as neil said earlier leg theory was as old as the hills it was just a method of trying to get batsmen out I was honoured to be a friend of his, admitted to the inner circle. But Bodyline, we knew exactly how he felt about it. Not much point regenerating it. Um, he felt victimised, but my goodness, he made up for it afterwards. When they got rid of that scourge, he made almost as many runs as he did in 1930. Still a record, young Don, 22 years of age, 974 runs. Magnificent so good that they devised this evil system of attack. Well, in the final part of the podcast, I'd like to chat about the rivalry that we've been discussing for the last sort of 20, 30 minutes. The birth of the urn, Ivo Bly, the ashes, the love story, the not-so-love story of the Bodyline series, the tactics used. Um, it's a question for both of you. I mean, is there a greater sporting rivalry than the Ashes? I can't think of one with more history to it. There are, there are plenty of uh, very antagonistic rivalries out there. You can, you can look at India and Pakistan in almost any field of sport, um, but it's not restricted to test cricket. I think if they played each other in hockey, there'd be just as much rivalry. Um, and obviously one day cricket as well plays its part. 
there are plenty of rivalries, local rivalries mostly in football, but they, they tend to be a few hours on a single day and then maybe there's a bit of bragging rights the next day. You don't have you know, weeks of build-up, weeks of a series, and then weeks of bragging afterwards. The, the Ashes is something unique, in my opinion. Um, I can't think of, of anything quite like it in the world of sport. It's got antiquity on its side, hasn't it? It's been going for a very long time now. And nothing lasts forever, we're told. But uh, the Ashes saga shows every sign of extending over the horizon and who knows where until England and Australia get upset with each other again and vow never to play each other again. But that's unthinkable, isn't it? It, it does feel at times almost like an in-family rivalry. I mean, David, you mentioned you're a member of both nations, but it does feel like it's almost a brother-sister-sibling rivalry at times, the Ashes. It is. It's been said that England and Australia, the peoples, the cricket people, can be as rude as they like to each other and no real offence is taken, whereas you've got to watch a step with certain other countries and cricket teams have to be a bit more diplomatic but England and Australia you know if any if anyone's had a brother they know what it's like there's rivalry there's competition there's bullying uh, and there's love and I'd like to think that deep down this is one of the very very strong things still holding these two countries together when other phenomena are seeing them drift apart Thanks again to both my guests today and thank you for listening to this episode one, The Birth of the Urn and Bodyline from this Ashes special of the Lord's Cricket podcast. In the next episode, I'll be joined by former England bowler Bob Willis and Wisdom Monthly editor Phil Walker as we discuss perhaps the most iconic Ashes series of all time. Well, if you're an Englishman, the 1981 series, more commonly known as Botham's Ashes. Until then, remember to subscribe and download the podcast from all the usual podcast providers and for more information head to lords.org forward slash podcast you've been listening to the lords cricket podcast an ashes special get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com it's like your own personal post office sign up with promo code program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts that's stamps.com code program for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.